The scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verses 11 through 30. It can be found on pages 807 and 32, respectively, in the Black Bibles. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from my flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. And also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep these things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, 
by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Wiles family, for reading. Like I said, my name's John. I'm the pastor here, one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Good to be with y'all. Um, quite a text we just read, right? Last call to send your kids to children's worship here. Sneak out during prayer, no one will judge you. It's totally fine. Seriously, if you need to do that while we pray, you can do that. Um, but uh, we, are, we are overjoyed to be celebrating Advent with you. Uh, thank you for being with us this morning. Let me pray, and when we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that, um, that your word is, is not only true, but it's so real. Uh, it is so real to our human experience. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you don't pull punches and we pray that you, would, uh, that you would not pull any now, that you would help us to see who you are, but also to see who we are and our need for you. Uh, we pray that you would do all this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So actually, it was a couple years ago, um, someone in my family was given, I think it was the Ancestry.com or 23andMe kind of thing for Christmas where you can spit in the tube and they, you send it off and they look at your DNA and tell you who you're related to. And I, I was so excited about this because you know, I just couldn't wait to see who, who's, who's my extended family. You know, like what, who, how many famous people am I related to? How many kings and queens? And, you know, we just wanted to, just wanted to see who it was. And the results came back and turns out pretty average family. Actually, my, the, the, um, the lie that had been spreading around my family for years that we were somehow related to Pocahontas was completely, yeah, proven to be the lie that it is. It's, it's a lie. I, we are, turns out we're related to very normal people. And it, it made me wonder, though, while I was considering this series that we're going to be doing during Advent, um, there's really, there, there actually is one person who got to choose what family they were from. You think about that. If, if you could choose who your lineage would be, who would you choose? If you're like me, you probably would want to be related to royalty or famous people or Pocahontas. Jesus actually got to, if, if, if the Bible is true, we believe it is, God got to choose who his lineage would be. And in the book of Matthew, we see who it is. And the genealogy of Matthew, it's a, it's a strange genealogy. And one of the reasons that it's strange is because of who populates that genealogy. It's filled with cowards and crooks, failures, degenerates. 
But another thing that's strange about the genealogy, particularly since it was written in the first century, is that there's women in the genealogy. It's completely odd. You don't find first century genealogies that have women listed in the genealogies, and yet five times in the genealogy of Jesus we see women listed. And it's kind of like a dare. Like I dare you to go back and check what these women's lives were like. And it's also, the reason I want us to do this, we're gonna take up the dare. We're gonna spend the next five weeks looking at the lives of these women in the genealogy of Jesus. It's because as we see their stories, what I think that we'll see is that each of their stories are a window into the heart of God. That, that the God who made all things when he chose to send his son to become a person, a real life human being, he could have chosen any family, any, any lineage, and he chose this lineage. He singles out these women, and the stories of these women show us the heart of God. And we'll see that here in this story, and it's quite a story, this story of Tamar. And so three things that we'll see. First, we're going to see abandoning men, men who abandon. Abandoning men. Second, the instrumental woman. And then third, the faithful God. So first, abandoning men. We actually didn't read the first few verses of this story because it's truly rated M for mature if you want to go back and read kind of what happens leading up to this story. I dare you to do that too. You can do that. But what happens at the beginning of this story is this woman named Tamar is a Canaanite and she marries one of Judah's sons. Son is named Ur. Quite a name. And Judah is the great grandfather of a man named Abraham. And we've talked about Abraham actually as we've discussed the book of Acts and how it's a continuation of God's mission that he gives to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. God says, I'm going to bless you so that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And now here's this Canaanite woman. She's one of the nations of the earth. And Abraham's great-grandson, his son, marries her. But something happens with Ur. It's actually the first time this happens in the Bible, in the whole story of the Bible. Ur, we don't, we don't, it's just one verse. We don't know exactly what he did or what he was like, but we do know that he was so wicked and evil that God killed him. It's the first time in the story of Genesis that somebody is singled out for being so particularly evil and wicked that God judges them on the spot and kills her. That's who Tamar's married to. Probably not a fun guy to have as your husband. And at that point in her story, an ancient law called the Leverite Law would go into action. And what this meant is it was the job of the father-in-law to care for his daughter-in-law if she's widowed without a child, which is Tamar's situation here. Her husband's died. She has no children. And there's a number of reasons 
why this law came into place. What the law stated is that it's the father-in-law's job to provide the next son as a husband for his daughter-in-law. And the reason for this is a number of reasons. One is so that the oldest in the family's lineage could continue. But also, they didn't have insurance policies in the ancient Near East. Your insurance policy was your kids. Your kids took care of you as you aged. They were, they were there to provide for you and to be with you through the aging process. And so there, there was no one more, um, more marginalized and more at risk than a widowed childless woman in the ancient Near East. And so this law was supposed to care for her. And so Judah, Judah provides his second son, this man named Onan. But just like Ur was an abandoning husband who abandoned God's law and abandoned raising his family in the right way, and God killed him, Onan is also an, an abandoning man. In fact, Onan is such an abandoning man that he makes sure that even though he lies with Tamar, that she never gets pregnant by him. He makes sure that she never gets pregnant by him because he doesn't want her to continue the lineage of his older brother so that he can have more stuff, right? Like if his brother, he gets more of the inheritance that there's no lineage of his brother's line. So he selfishly abandons his duty to Tamar And he becomes the second person in the entire story of the Bible that God singles out and kills for his evil and wickedness. And so then we come to Judah. And in this story, Judah is, he's the chief abandoner. He has abandoned so many things already in this story. The story of Judah and Tamar kind of comes right in the middle of a much larger story in the in the book of Genesis about Joseph. It's kind of, it seems super random, actually, if you're reading through Genesis. All of a sudden, this, this story about Judah and Tamar is plopped into the middle of this story of Joseph. And what's happened right before this story about Judah and Tamar is Joseph is sold into slavery, into Egypt, because his brothers are so jealous of him. They're jealous that Joseph is the favorite of their father's sons. He's the youngest brother. They're jealous about that. And initially their plan was to kill Joseph. But Judah has the bright idea. No, actually, instead of that, let's abandon him to Egypt. Let's send him as a slave into Egypt. And after they do that, guess what Judah does? He doesn't want to go back and see his dad. He abandons his father and he goes to Canaan. And then he abandons his father's plan and he marries a Canaanite woman. He, he abandons God's plan and he marries somebody he wasn't supposed to marry. He abandons his duty as a father to raise men who seek righteousness and love mercy. Instead, he, he raises these scoundrels named Ur and Onan. And now he has his daughter-in-law at her most vulnerable state, and he abandons her. He sends her back to her home, way worse off than she was before. And we see that these people that God had raised up to be a blessing to the nations are actually acting much more like a curse to the Canaanites. And this is happening 
through Judah. If you look at verse 11, after Onan dies, Judah treats Tamar like she's dangerous or like she's the problem. It says, he feared that, she, that Shelah would die. In other words, he's saying, you know what? It's her fault. That's what abandoners do. They blame shift. He shifts the blame to this foreign woman. Something about her. We gotta get her out of our house. Send her back from where she came. So he shifts the blame to Tamar. And in doing that, he does another thing that abandoners do. He neglects her. Out of sight, out of mind. Don't have to worry about her anymore. You need to know, this woman is probably around, the, the, this, the extent of this story, she's probably between 15 and 19 years old. This young, vulnerable woman neglected. Send her back. Get her out of here. And he does another thing that abandoners do, which he self-justifies it. You know, it's the right thing to do for my family. This is the right decision. She's dangerous. We need to get her out of here. He justifies it. And he abandons the responsibility. But really, all of this is a ruse for him to be more self-centered, to care for himself rather than his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And I want you to see, friends, when God's people abandon their mission, it deeply wounds those who they were meant to bless. When God's people abandon their mission, it deeply wounds those whom they were meant to bless. We see this all throughout our world and our culture. Now, this is a story of a bad father named Judah, a father who has abandoned many of his responsibilities. And it led me to do some research even on fatherlessness in our country. Do you know that, father, that America leads the industrialized world in fatherlessness? One out of three children grow up in a home without their biological father. We have a culture of abandoning men. And this this deeply wounds those whom we were meant to bless and care for. 85%, this is according to the Texas Department of Corrections, 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. It's a staggering number. But like Judah, we can abandon our responsibilities as fathers even when we're in our own home. We don't have to be out of the home to abandon our responsibilities as fathers. I read this. Um, <clears throat> among those, this is from a, um, a man who writes a lot about parenting. Uh, he's an expert in the field of parenting and fatherhood. He says, among those who have fathers, the average school-age boy spends just 30 minutes per week in one-to-one -one conversation with his father. That compares with 44 hours a week in front of a TV, a video game screen, or the internet screen. I think we are neglecting our boys tremendously. The result of that is that our boys aren't spending time with mentors, with elders, who can really show them the path, show them the way of how it is that we're supposed to behave as healthy men. And so what do we do with this? Do we blame shift? It's my kid's calendar, why well, I don't see them much. I'm swamped. 
Do we neglect? Do we self-justify? I, I just need some self-care. I need to spend more time in my self-care so that I can care for others. Self-care is not all wrong. But I do wonder if sometimes, I mean, I, I think about how <clears throat> in my own family, how quick I am to pick up my phone when I'm bored around my kids and to just look at the screen. And in, those, in that moment, when my child is trying to get my attention, when my child wants me to play with them, when my child wants me to engage with them face to face, I'm abandoning them for Instagram or ESPN. And there's, there's an irony, I think, that's coming to me, too, when my kids actually get phones and begin doing the same thing back to me that I've been doing to them for years. We are raising a generation of kids, many of whom feel neglected or abandoned in their own home. Not only this, but as I said, God's people uh, are meant to bless, and when we when we don't bless those that we are called to bless, it actually deeply wounds them. And I can't help but think about the way that this has happened for people even in the church. Like the church is supposed to be an instrument of God's mercy and grace to the world. And yet many people, many people receive wounds from the church. They come to, the, they come to church and their experience is one of judgment or rejection or inhospitality and if that's you first off thanks for being here I'm sorry I'm sorry if you've been wounded by God's people and perhaps you have felt abandoned but what I want you to see in this story is that God sees that God sees the abandoned and he cares and he has solidarity with you. And we see that in this instrumental woman, second point. She knows, <clears throat> you about this? she knows that God cares about justice because she was married to two people that God killed because of their wickedness. She knows that God is interested in justice that's been clearly demonstrated to her. And she may be wondering, is Judah next? Is God about to kill Judah? I mean, he's killed my first two husbands because of their evil and their wickedness. Is Judah next? And it's hard to know her motive for what she does next. Is it out of mercy for him, for Judah? Is it out of faithfulness for holding on to God's promises? Is it out of self-preservation the text doesn't give us enough to really come and land on a definite reason for why she does what she does. But what she does is she disguises herself as a prostitute. And if you're wondering what that is, if you're a person in this room who doesn't know what that is, talk to your parents. But you just need to know that it, it is a sinful job and it's a job that makes God very sad because people who act as prostitutes almost never want to be doing it. But they turn to it because of life's circumstances and it's heartbreaking. And that's what happens to Tamar, it's heartbreaking. She's abandoned. And 
what we see here is that, I mean, like, what we believe is we're all sinners, right? Judah's a sinner. Tamar is a sinner. And yet his sin of abandonment and neglect is greater, considered greater in this text than her sexual entrapment of him. That's why the narrator quotes him saying, when he realizes what he's done, she is more righteous than I. And this squares with um, what we hear God saying later in the prophet, through the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 4.14, God says, I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. Why would God not punish them? Because of abandoning men. Listen. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. You see, God cares deeply that his people who were meant to bless, to be a blessing, he's blessed so that they might be a blessing. This cuts deep at his heart. And so what Tamar does is incredibly bold. She puts her life on the line, which is actually the opposite of abandoning. She's committed to this plan happening, to this promise that God has given to Abraham and his seed that he would bless them and make them a great nation. And so God uses her and what happens to Judah is he has a reckoning with what he's done. I mean, there's so much about him that we could tease out in this, in this passage. I mean, he's totally impulsive in his decision to do what he did. He doesn't have any money on him. He tries to kind of like slide out of it and says, yeah, I'll send you a goat later. And she's like, no, 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 no. I know you. You're not going to send a goat. Basically, like, give me your driver's license. It's kind of like, what? give me your collateral. Gives the collateral. And then when he sends the goat back, he doesn't even go. He's hiding it. He has a friend like, hey, can you go like, send this goat back to that prostitute on the side of the road? He won't go himself. Comes back. She's gone. He's like, you know what? Just hide it. Let's not say anything about it. Don't go looking for her. Let's keep this all on the down low. That's how he's acting. And then he hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and he loses it. I knew it. I knew that, I knew that this is what she was like. Bring her out here and let's burn her. That's what he wants to do. It's incredibly dramatic. It's unbelievable. His blame shifting, his negligence, his self-justification, his selfishness, his hypocrisy. And then she sends back the wallet, basically. Like as she's being brought out to be burned, she says, here's, send Judah this seal, this cord, this staff, and say, it's by this man that I'm pregnant. And he has a reckoning. He's totally humbled. And friends, this is how God will bless the nations, through a humbled people. And he will do this because he is a faithful God. Final point. Judah's eyes are opened to his unrighteousness. And some of y'all have heard John Cox say this. He's come and spoke at our church before. The best way to love an unrepentant person is to help them become repentant. And that's what Tamar does here with Judah. And Judah is humbled, and his life 
is changed. And the reason that this story is plopped right in the middle of the Joseph story, the larger Joseph story, is after this story, we see Judah is a totally different person. Before this story, it's his idea to sell Joseph into Egypt. After this story, when a famine comes and all the brothers go to Egypt, and they don't know this, but their brother Joseph has risen to power. He's the second most powerful person in the entire nation of Egypt. And Joseph is gonna test his brothers to see if they've changed, to see if he can trust them. And there's maybe some cynicism in Joseph, understandable. And so he traps them and he makes this situation happen where the youngest brother again, Benjamin, like if they're, if they're gonna be jealous of someone, it's gonna be Benjamin. The youngest brother is going to be brought in to be a slave in Egypt. Sound like a familiar story? They're gonna make him a slave in Egypt. And you know what Judah does? Judah steps forward. The one who had planned to make Joseph a slave. Judah steps forward and he says, not Benjamin, but me. Take me instead. Make me the slave. Judah becomes willing to lay down his life for Benjamin because he's been humbled by the grace of God through the life of Tamar. And how we will become a people who are willing to lay down our lives, friends, is by experiencing that same grace and forgiveness, by having a reckoning with like, this is who we really are. We are sinners in need of a savior. We're people who abandon our responsibilities, abandon those in need of us, abandon God even. Yet God comes running after us. When we begin to see this, it begins to change us. There's a man named Lee Jong Rock who lives in Seoul, Korea. In 2009, he heard something on his doorstep. He went and opened his door, and there, lying on his front step, was a baby. A baby suffering from hypothermia. He'd been out in, on his doorstep for quite a long time in the evening. He and his wife brought the child in, warmed it. Child was, uh, had special needs. They adopted it. A Couple weeks later, another baby. And then another baby. Apparently he was getting a bit of a reputation. After the third child, they realized we have to do something about this. And the more that they learned about what was happening in Seoul, Korea, is that hundreds of babies were being abandoned in that city every year, and that 80% of them didn't survive. And so, he made a baby drop box. A warmed, heated, blanketed box with a message on it that said, please don't throw away your unwanted babies, please bring them here. And to this day, they have now rescued over 1,500 babies, many of whom have special needs. Lee Jong Rock has adopted 17 of them. And there's a documentary called Dropbox where you can see this story. And the question is why would you do this? He's a Christian. He's a Christian. 
and they interviewed the director and they said, what was it like making this film? And you know what the director said? I became a Christian. When I began to see this, I became a Christian. And the director goes on to say, but what I, found, what I realized is that Lee Jong Rock is not, he wasn't born a rescuer and neither was I. We were first rescued so that we could become rescuers. And friends, this is what Jesus does. He literally becomes a baby born in a little box in a manger. He becomes a baby born in a box because there wasn't room for him anywhere else. This is the heart of God. Jesus is the greater Judah who refuses to abandon us. Instead, Jesus identifies with those who are abandoned. Are you afraid of being abandoned? What more would you want to see from God than that he would become a human so that you wouldn't be? But he goes farther than this. In having Tamar and his family, what we see is that God identifies with those who are abandoned, with those who've been abandoned. He identifies with the foreigner like Tamar. He identifies with the widow like Tamar. He identifies with the marginalized like Tamar. He identifies with women like Tamar. And so he identifies with us. He so identifies with us that he becomes abandoned. And the night before he goes to the cross, his friends abandon him. And the day that he goes onto the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father abandons him. Jesus steps into our abandonment so that what the apostle John writes could be true. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was abandoned. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus goes to the cross so that his children would never be abandoned by the Father. And this is who Jesus is, the son of Tamar, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you, um, that you sent your son to become a man. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, help us to see the beauty of your grace, the depths of your love for sinners like Judah and like Tamar and like us. And we pray that you would help us to believe and to follow you. And we ask that you would make this church, make us a people who has been rescued and then participates in your rescue plan for those in our communities and in our city and in this world. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.